0: Section 65 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, Kerner Commission Report. Supplement on Control of Disorder, Coordinating the Control Response, Part 2. Although local considerations are paramount in formulating mutual aid agreements, certain basic factors must be taken into account. Proper Planning Any effective response to a disorder demands full coordination and planning of all agencies that may be involved in control activities. In the preceding section of this report, we outline the necessary intra-jurisdictional planning and coordination to deal with civil disorders. The same factors must be considered in drafting intercity agreements. Without proper planning and objective evaluation of the community resources available, mutual agreements are largely worthless. Legal Problems Although we believe there are no insurmountable legal problems for putting into effect mutual aid agreements, with the possible exception of home rule cities, state legislation may present unnecessary obstacles for example, by restricting such agreements in adjoining communities. The Commission recommends that each state not only undertake a review of existing legislation regarding mutual aid agreements for emergency services, but also provide any necessary legislation to permit these agreements to be fully implemented. Such legislation should assure that police officers serving in other jurisdictions have adequate authority to do their jobs, and that police firemen and other government personnel are given protection against damage suits, loss of personal pension rights, and loss of disability benefits. In accord with the Supreme Court case of Virginia v. Tennessee 148, U.S. 503, 1893, inter mutual aid agreements across state lines require statutory authorization of both states. They do not require congressional approval financial arrangements. Since the control of civil disorders may be extremely expensive, mutual assistance agreements must provide for payment of costs in a manner that will encourage rather than inhibit prompt and immediate response in time of emergency. Various methods of allocating costs include apportionment of the cost of control activities among participating jurisdictions by a formula based upon either the location of the disorder or the relative size of the contracting cities. Each jurisdiction bearing its own cost with the mutual advantages of the agreement considered adequate compensation, or one jurisdiction offering its services to another jurisdiction on a free basis. Basic operating procedures. Any workable agreement must specifically delineate operational procedures, including methods by which the agreement can be invoked or activated, command arrangements for integrating the services of the calling and responding forces, the conditions under which a jurisdiction may decline to respond to a request for assistance, e.g. if it has a major fire or disorder within its own borders, a method for terminating the agreement, supporting steps to be taken by participating jurisdictions, as e.g. imposition of curfews in ordinances in neighboring cities, a basis for allocating liability for compensation of injured personnel, arrangements for cooperative training and riot control techniques, and training in joint operations pursuant to the agreement. Although responsibility for implementing intercity mutual aid packs rests primarily with the cities involved, state government has a corresponding duty to aid the cities in formulating these agreements. And furthermore, to integrate the agreements into state plans for controlling disorders. California, for example, has a master law enforcement mutual aid plan providing for extensive interjurisdictional support during a natural disaster or riot. The community's request for help in controlling a disorder is first referred to the county. If the county is unable to supply the necessary resources, application is then made to a regional coordinator who draws manpower from local governments within a particular geographical area under his control if this aid is still inadequate a request is made to the director of the state disaster office who can then transfer to the riot area resources from any jurisdiction in the state other ways in which a state may promote intercity mutual aid agreements include legislative reforms to remove legal impediments to mutual agreements counseling local jurisdictions concerning such agreements, determining the appropriate role of state police or National Guard when mutual aid agreements are in force, and providing specialized resources and equipment to participating jurisdictions. Whether or not adjoining jurisdictions implement formal mutual assistance agreements, they should, at the very minimum, coordinate operations in areas where there is adjoining or concurrent law enforcement jurisdiction. Failure to do so may have tragic consequences, as, for example, when the county police broke up a meeting for lack of a park permit after a city police department had authorized a grievance meeting with rioters in a public park. Interstate Mutual Assistance Agreements A major disturbance within a single city or a series of disturbances in a number of cities may require control resources beyond city and state capabilities. For example, the Watts riot in August 1965 required a commitment over 13,400 National Guard troops, 62% of total strength. Newark needed over 4,000 National Guard troops, over 30% of total strength. In Detroit, 8,262 National Guardsmen, 85% of total strength, plus 2,137 Air National Guard troops together with more than 4,500 federal troops, were employed or in reserve nearby. If simultaneous major disturbances had broken out elsewhere in these states, resources far beyond state capabilities would have been necessary. There are two major sources for additional aid. One, federal forces, as in Detroit of July 1967. Or two, state forces from adjoining or nearby states pursuant to interstate mutual assistance agreements. Interstate agreements for the commitment of National Guard forces of more than one state, besides requiring congressional approval, present delicate and complex problems of federal-state relations. Furthermore, utilization of federally financed and trained National Guard troops pursuant to such agreements also raises problems relating to the primary purpose and mission of the Guard. Policy arguments against the use of such agreements focus on the established principle that military forces should not be used against civilian population except in circumstances of extreme necessity, and then only in the degree and for such duration as may be necessary to restore order. The use of federal forces to assist a state in controlling a civil disorder is restricted by a system of checks and balances that divides both power and responsibility between an individual state and the federal government this carefully balanced allocation of functions provides protection against premature or excessive use of military force to control civil disorder under interstate agreements a governor would be able to call upon one or more other states for military assistance and would thus be able to concentrate military power without the restraints imposed by the federal-state relationship. Such power could potentially lead to excessive or indiscriminate use of military force against the civil population. On more practical grounds, we have already noted that the dual federal-state function and mission of the National Guard create difficulties in the use of the Guard for riot control purposes, even within a single state. We also noted that difficulties and burdens imposed upon individual guardsmen when one guard unit is pressed into duty two or more times within a limited period of time. These difficulties would be greatly enlarged if guard units were subjected to call-up in more than one state pursuant to interstate agreements. Furthermore, because special army units are immediately available for riot control duty, because the army and air force can rapidly transport large number of troops, federal troops could be dispatched to the scene of disorder in considerably less time than would be required for mobilizing and deploying guard forces from adjoining or nearby states pursuant to interstate agreements. Finally, the disciplined military experience and intensive training received by active federal troops make them generally more effective than National Guard troops in putting down violence with minimum force under the adverse conditions of working in a strange city and state. Interstate mutual assistance agreements for non-military aid, firemen and firefighting equipment, food, emergency equipment, medical supplies and services would not be subjected to the difficulties summarized above and could play a valuable role in augmenting state resources. Vertical Planning COORDINATED STATE-LOCAL PLANNING We have previously noted that for most states, the National Guard is the primary control force available to supplement police forces in a single city. Coordinated planning for state assistance must therefore center about the National Guard. To the extent that state police are available in sufficient numbers and with adequate training for control operations, planning should also encompass their use most of the police departments surveyed have some plan or arrangements for obtaining state help the department of the army has also established liaison with the adjutants-general of all state national guards in order to review or prepare riot control plans for major cities within each state and coordinate federal state and local plans the commission commends these actions it strongly recommends that the appropriate state civil officials heads of the state police departments and top local civil and police officials of these cities be involved in the planning process. State officials must also assume the responsibility for establishing liaison with local officials in any city within the state that may experience a disorder in order to review or prepare riot control plans. The Commission cannot deal with all aspects of state local planning, but if all participating agencies are involved in the planning process, and if plans are tested in training exercises. Most problem areas will be identified and suitable solutions found. However, evidence available to the Commission has demonstrated that three major problems must be resolved in order to formulate an effective state-local plan. These problems and some suggested guidelines for a solution are as follows. 1. Authority to request and order call-up of state forces. In the early stages of one of last summer's major disorders, the initial call for state police assistance came from an inspector of the local police department and was directed to the head of the state police. However, under state law, only the mayor could ask for and only the governor could provide this assistance. Time was lost because of the failure to use proper channels. Since most states have specific laws setting out who can call the National Guard or the state police, Any plan must necessarily take into account the statutory procedures. Many states do not have laws specifying who has the authority to request state assistance, and some laws do not specify the conditions under which state assistance will be authorized, whether or not requested. These points should be covered in an effective plan, which should also provide for a proper delegation of authority if the primary official is unavailable. As with all aspects of planning, it is imperative that the provisions for requesting and ordering state assistance be made known to all officials, including operating levels. 2. Command and Communication Between State and Local Forces Although most police departments surveyed understood how to request National Guard help, the question of command, if the Guard or state police was called in, was largely unanswered. In some states, command responsibilities are spelled out in the state statutes. In others, it is left to agreements, formal or otherwise, or to executive directives. An effective state-local plan must specifically resolve this question. The Commission heard conflicting testimony from National Guard officers and police officials on which agency should be in command. It is unnecessary for the Commission to make recommendations on this point since a specific answer is less important than making certain that the question is resolved, that it is resolved in advance of the emergency, and that to the fullest extent possible it is resolved in favor of a single commander. Adequate planning for coordinated acts as well as physical proximity of command posts should eliminate most command problems regardless of who is in overall command. Such planning should also eliminate possibilities of different degrees of force by different law enforcement groups, as, for example, when one group increases aggressive action while another is unloading weapons and attempting to reduce tensions. Commitment of National Guard troops as individuals or in pairs destroys the basic value of the Guard as a disciplined force to be deployed as units and in strength appropriate to the emergency merely adding guardsmen to police patrols as was done in some cities that experience disorders is not effective for the unit commander loses control and cannot readily assemble his unit to respond in force except for the desirability of having some police officers with the national guard unit to serve in a liaison role or to make any necessary arrests and write charges military and police units should not be deployed together Thus, regardless of overall command, any plan must ensure that guard units are utilized as such and under control of a guard officer. Adequate command procedures require that the state and local forces be able to communicate with each other. Officials from two major cities pointed out the extreme difficulties encountered in communication between local police and National Guard. In one case, there was no direct communication between the National Guard troops on the street and the local police unless police officers were riding with the national guard troops or utilizing the police walkie talkie system in the other instance the state police radios were on a frequency different from that of the local police department and according to one state official the local police did many things that the state did not know about until much later effective state local planning must also take into account that state police and National Guard forces may be working with local agencies other than the police, particularly fire departments. Adequate command provisions, including communications, must take these additional agencies into account. Moreover, state local planning should not neglect other state resources, such as state community relations departments. 3. Training Planning is not enough. There must be some provision for testing any plan to discover weaknesses before a disorder, preferably by a command post exercise. Many police chiefs have also suggested that in order for state and local forces to coordinate their activities correctly, each must have full awareness of the organization, function, and capabilities of the other organizations. Both National Guard and police officials emphasize the desirability of joint training Between National Guard troops and state and local law enforcement officers, the Commission recommends that each state thoroughly explore the possibility of undertaking such training, especially at the command level. These exercises not only enhance the capabilities of both the National Guard and the local police, but also provide the necessary testing of state, local, and state-local planning. Federal-State Coordination article four section four of the constitution provides that the federal government shall protect each of the states against invasion and on the application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence to carry out this provision as well as its authority with respect to the militia the congress in seventeen ninety two enacted the statutory provisions that now appear with minor amendments as Section 331 and 334 of Title X of the United States Code. These sections authorize the President, after a request of a state and after issuing an appropriate proclamation, to use such of the Federal armed forces as he considers necessary to suppress insurrection or domestic violence in that state. However, in accordance with both constitutional policy and the legislative history of these statutes, no president since these provisions were invoked in 1838 has ordered federal troops into action until one, the actual request for federal troops had been received from the state, and two, it had become clear that the disorder was beyond the control capacities of state and local authorities. As a result, since 1932, Federal troops have been dispatched at state request to quell domestic violence only in 1943 and 1967, both times in Detroit. The most recent experience in Detroit demonstrated the kinds of problems which can develop in the use of federal troops to control civil disorders. We firmly believe that primary responsibility for the control of civil disorders rests with the cities and that the state should provide the necessary reserve manpower and resources. We recognize, however, that in some instances, no state will have adequate manpower or resources to deal with a major disorder or to deal with disorders in a number of cities. Because of the problems that would be created by use of interstate agreements, the federal government will be the only source of the necessary additional assistance. The adequacy of the existing statutory authority and administrative mechanism for call-up of federal troops has been questioned as a result of the Detroit experience. Of particular concern are the implications of the use of the word insurrection in Section 331 and the requirement that federal troops can be dispatched only if the violence cannot be brought under control by state and local resources. The word insurrection creates fears because of the possibility of nullifying insurance policies which generally do not protect against damages caused by insurrection however the constitution speaks only of domestic violence not insurrection and federal troops have been dispatched at state request in various situations other than political uprisings as a result existing instructions to states for obtaining federal troops require only a request based upon the existence of serious domestic violence the second point requiring exhaustion of state resources presents a more serious question since it limits use of federal troops to the most extreme situations here the requirement is based not upon specific constitutional or statutory language but instead upon constitutional policy legislative history and the precedent established by a number of presidents Some claim this requirement should and could be eased by amendment of section 331. Others point to the wisdom of severe restrictions on use of federal military forces against civilians, a concept that is inherent in the constitutional separation of power and responsibility between the states and the federal government. Although we express no opinion on the constitutional aspects of the latter argument, we are in accord that it represents sound policy and believe that the existing conditions for obtaining such help should be retained. We suggest, however, that in determining whether to commit Federal forces, the state of preparedness, training, and availability of the State's National Guard troops be taken into consideration. Although we agree with the policy underlying the use of troops pursuant to Section 331, we suggest that the section be amended to update it and ensure that the language reflects existing presidential precedents. The amendments should a. change the word insurrection to domestic violence to eliminate any possible difficulties, b. make clear that the president will honor a request from a governor, not only when the state legislature cannot be convened, but also when the legislature cannot act in time to meet in an emergency situation c. Make clear that the president will honor requests from a governor only when the state is unable to control the violence with its own resources, including its own National Guard. d. Correct the apparently unintended restriction that only the National Guard of other states, not the state requesting help, can be called into federal service. e. Generally modernize the language, e.g. change militia to National Guard. Certain difficulties in obtaining federal troops can be ameliorated if state and local officials are fully aware of the means by which federal assistance may be granted and the conditions that must be met. To this end, Attorney General Ramsey Clark wrote the governor of each state in August 1967 and outlined the legal requirements for using federal troops to quell domestic violence and the means by which federal assistance can be obtained copy annexed as Exhibit A to this supplement. To avoid any possible misunderstanding on the use of Federal troops, the Commission recommends that each state take the appropriate steps to have the information in this letter disseminated to all state and local officials, to the Adjutant General for dissemination to the National Guard, and to all heads of local law enforcement agencies. Conclusion. The fully coordinated planning recommended in this portion of the report Will require the time, effort, and active support of government officials and community leaders. It would be tragic indeed if this time and effort were expended solely in planning for a paramilitary response to civil disorders. The Commission therefore recommends that the government and community leaders involved in the planning should use the planning process as an opportunity to deal with other vital problems to assure that the resulting plans can serve additional valuable purposes. The same planning and resources needed to control a serious civil disorder are also essentially applicable to any major local disaster or emergency, which requires a total community effort as well as outside help. Such emergencies and disasters include, for example, floods, hurricanes, explosions, and major fires. Even for individual agencies, portions of the civil disorder control plans Can often prove useful in dealing with a variety of common and recurring problems for example local police departments plus state police are often required to work together and coordinate operations in order to control and regulate large groups of people who assemble for parades visiting dignitaries and sporting events if these other purposes and uses are considered and acted upon during the planning process the resulting plans will have utility far beyond riot control. More important, the efforts spent in planning for control of disorders provide government and community leaders an important starting point for efforts toward the ultimate and responsible solution to the problem of civil disorder, a fully coordinated government and private attack on the conditions that give rise to the disorders. End of section 65